Hello and welcome to Accountant Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to be talking about the classical economic model, also known as the long run model or the growth model or the supply side model. We will be able to, at the end of this, define growth and describe its benefits and costs, describe how markets, specialization, and growth are related, list sources of growth, and describe how the resources of growth can be converted into growth. First, I want to take a look at some policies that this model will lead to. So I'm going to say what the ideas in this model tend to lead to in terms of policy decisions. First, take a look at those, then look at the, the actual model, and then take a revisit in terms of how it may lead to these policy decisions. So first, let's see where this model tends to lead people to think to in terms of policy decisions, and then go through the model and then go back here and take a look at this again. So this model tends to lead people to say that they want to encourage saving and investment as opposed to spending oftentimes. Formalized property rights are going to be an important thing and reduction of bureaucracy. So the rights to property tend to be an important consideration when we're taking a look at the classical model for providing more rights of, to the right kind of education. So education being something of importance to a classical model, but of course the right kind of education, which we'll take a look at. Promoting policies that encourage technology innovation. So innovation being something that's going to be important in terms of how can we uh, get innovation going in terms of a classical model for promoting policies that allow taking advantage of specialization. So policies that encourage people to specialize is going to be a concept of policy decisions that tend to be led towards if we're looking through the lens of a classical model. The basic assumption of the classical model is that if we can increase growth, if growth increases, then everybody is better off. That's going to be the basic idea of the classic model. And that was pretty much what everybody thought all the way through basically the 1920s. That was going to be the long-term growth model and the major focus being on long-term growth thought being that the market, the free market, will take care of everything else and we can just focus on growth and that will is how everybody will be best off. Now in the 1930s, of course, we had the Great Depression and that was a huge downturn and it became very difficult to say during that downturn that we should just wait it out and, and have it uh, see that things will retrieve to equilibrium at some point in time. It was difficult to make that argument, although the argument is made, there's still debates in terms of what uh, happened in the 1930s and what led out of uh, the depressions in the 1930s. But this point in time is going to be when modern macroeconomics and the focus on the short term and the focus on business cycles really happen. So the discussion, of course, within the 1930s around how did we get into a Great Depression and how does one get out of a Great Depression are going to be debated, of course, during this time period. And that's when the short-term model, also oftentimes a Keynesian model, uh, being termed as a Keynesian model, came out. And that's going to be the model on the short term and the model on business cycles. And that really took place until about the 1960s in terms of the U.S. policy. In the 1960s, we had basically a Keynesian model. And we'll, we'll talk about that separately and, and where they uh, contrast each other, a classical and a Keynesian model. And then, of course, in the 1970s, we had stagflation, which wasn't supposed to happen in the, in the Keynesian model. And then we had a, kind of a bounce back to some of the classical ideas and a bit of a blending between the two models at that time. So if we go back to basically the classical model and, and then take a look at the ideas of the classical model, focusing on that long-term growth, the major idea of the classical model is that, of course, we want to grow. And we can compare this to that concept of the production possibility frontier. So when we saw the production possibility frontier, you'll remember we compared two goods. We had the vision, the economy that only had two goods in it. And we said that we can produce anywhere with our inputs on that production possibility frontier. And the, the idea being if, if we're efficient, 
we're on the production possibility frontier. And if we're not efficient, we're somewhere within the production possibility frontier. And of course, and the market, the idea of the markets for a classical model are that they are efficient. So the market basically means that for the economy as a whole, we would be on the production possibility frontier for this type of example. And our goal is to grow, to do same things that will push out the frontier, just like in that model. That's what we're looking to do. That's what the long-term focus in terms of a classical model is looking to do. The difference between the classical model uh, and the production possibility frontiers is we're looking at potential output, which is similar to the production possibility frontier, except that in the production possibility frontier, we're talking about those two items representing total output. And so we're also looking at kind of the distribution between those two items. That's not the case uh, here. We're not looking at the distribution. We're just looking at the potential output. And so the potential output, more focus on aggregate output, that's going to be the GDP. And the GDP is equal to consumption. Remember the formula GDP, gross domestic product. It's consumption plus investment plus uh, government spending plus, or consumption, government consumption, and net exports. Potential output is then the highest amount of output an economy can pr produce from existing production processes and resources. So that's kind of like where we would be if we're, if we're looking at comparing that to the production possibility frontier. That's basically where we would be on the line, where we would be efficient at that level of inputs. And then, of course, our goal is to see from a classical model how we can push that out, how we can have the, the increase in potential output. Say's law is going to be basically an assumption of a classical model, the assumption often being that aggregate demand equals aggregate supply, meaning supply creates its own demand. That's why the focus is on supply. That's going to be Say's law. And that's going to be because the demand is sufficient to buy whatever is supplied. It's going to be the concept. Or in other words, people work to supply goods so that they can then consume goods. And that leads to the idea that aggregate demand is equal to aggregate supply, meaning the reason people work is because they want to consume. Therefore, they produce stuff to to have others consume and that would give the indication that aggregate demand is going to be equal to aggregate supply if we contrast that with the keynesian idea where the economic output can vary from potential output so we could have a point where the economic output is different from potential output within a keynesian model that's going to be a short-run idea and that's when the government policy focus on expansionary policy to shift the aggregate demand curve so you can see that the keynesian idea is going to be that focus on demand to shift back out and from the classical idea, the economy is always at potential. It's always at the, the potential. Therefore, the focus of the government policy is on the supply side rather than the demand side, trying to increase long-term growth. And obviously, this, this is where the debate happens a lot of times in terms of policy recommendations. Growth rates can have a really large effect on the economy over time, even if we have modern growth rates, such as the U.S. having like around a 2% growth rate for a long period of time because of compounding, similar to interest compounding. The effect can be uh, large over a long period of time and affect a lot of people. We often use the rule of 72, which is going to be a shorthand rule to see how many years it takes for income to double. So if we take the number of years for doubling is going to be the 72 divided by the growth rate. And this could often be useful for us to see how many years it takes uh, the income to double. And this is a useful comparison when we're comparing different types of economies and seeing how fast they are growing. Factors that increase production include specialization and division of labor. So when we're focusing on that long-term perspective and trying to increase the, the supply side and increase the growth rate, then, of course, specialization is considered to be something beneficial. Specialization being that concept that we basically focus the thing on what we do best and we basically trade for the rest. And we can see that, of course, when we look at what we actually consume. Most of the things we consume, things that we probably don't even know how they're made and maybe not even how they work. 
for example, how clothes are made, how the microwave works, or how to cook. Some people don't know. So those are things that uh, we may trade for and specialize somewhere else. And that is something, a concept that is believed to make a lot of people better off. That specialization is something that leads us to be able to consume far more than we would be able to without that specialization in trade. Division of labor is going to be a concept that will increase the ability to specialize. So div division of labor is the splitting of a task to specialized components. So we see that in things like the assembly line, the assembly line divi dividing up a task to components. Therefore, people can specialize more and that should increase uh, productivity. Now, of course, there's going to be costs to these things. Even Adam Smith had uh, cost to these in terms of a, a pen manufacturers is, was the example he had where one individual is doing one specific thing in, in order to make a pen. And the cost to that, of course, is just a repetitive job and not being mentally stimulated probably, which is probably something that people are going to need, especially someone that uh, Adam Smith would be very concerned with something like that, being someone that likes to think a lot. So he would see that as a very high cost. That's actually a very large cost, even though we have the, the productivity. The other cost that people will point out is that markets are not going to be equal in terms of the distribution. Therefore, we, if we can say markets are efficient in terms of productivity, we know that the distribution of who gets what isn't always efficient with the markets. Now, from a supply side uh, argument, oftentimes the, the classical argument is going to be that more people would be far better off if we still just focused on increasing productivity. That would still increase everybody far more than if we focused on distribution and, and neglected the growth. The focusing on growth would would help more people than focus on distribution. And of course, that's a debated topic. Not in the other side of it would be that we need to focus more on distribution. And of course, there's all people inside in the middle in terms of those two policies. But the extremes would be that the growth rate in terms of a classical model would be the main focus that will help the most people. When we think about growth, we, we can think about it in, in numbers of growth, but we can also need to think about it in per capita. So this is going to be the idea that we have the per capita growth, and that's the idea that we need to average something. So when we're comparing two things of different sizes, two countries of different sizes, we can't just look at the number of growth. We need to look at some type of average in order for us to compare countries that have different sizes of populations, like the U.S. and China having different sizes of population. And so some type of average, a per capita average, is a good way to do that. Uh, per capita growth would be the percentage change in output, the percentage change in the output of stuff that's being produced, divided by the percentage change in population. That's going to give us the per capita growth rate, the average growth rate per person. Useful number to have. It is an estimate, of course, because it doesn't estimate what everybody actually has, because we talked about the fact that the distribution could be a, a huge factor in terms of what's the distribution in different countries. And uh, if, if it, all the distribution is skewed to uh, one small group of population, then the average could be a bit misleading in terms of the average person. Some people in those circumstances would say that instead of using the average in those cases, we should use the median. And this is just basic statistics where when, when should we use the average, when do we have outliers, and when should we use some other method in the medians when you take them all and you pick the number in the middle. <laughs> so if you pick the number in the middle, then you can account for in some ways the distribution problem when we have averages and we have all the distribution going to a, a small group of people the medium might be a better number to use in those cases we'll now take a look at some of those sources of growth so if we're looking at a classical model we're looking at the long-term growth so what are sources of growth we'll list them out here and then we'll go into some more detail so we have growth compatible institutions so institutions are going to be important we want institutions that are going to be compatible with growth 
investment and accumulated capital. So investment being something that considered to be important in terms of long-term growth perspective, available resources being important, technolo technological development being important, and the idea of entrepreneurship. So those are, those are some lists of some of the things that could lead towards the long-term growth. And so let's take a look at some of those. Let's first look at growth compatible institutions as a factor to increase the long-term growth. So the components of institutions are going to be important in terms of growth. And we want institutions in order to foster long-term growth to have uh, favored markets and private ownership. So two concepts that are going to be important are the idea of having markets, the market-based system being believed to be more efficient, therefore leading to more long-term growth and private ownership going to be an important part of that system because the idea of the market is that people can accumulate what they uh, what they earn and then uh, be able to keep it through that private ownership so what would those type of things favor we want po you know policies to be put in place to favor market types of activity market interaction allowing the market uh, to take place and then private ownership including things like law enforcement in order to support private ownership so people don't have to walk down the street and <laughs> worry about being robbed all the time that's going to be an important factor to stabilize ownership uh, for that for people to accumulate wealth and that will lead to to growth is the idea the idea of markets being that people get to keep more of what they earn so there's a lot of type of systems out there if we think of a more communist system that a system where everybody puts into a pool and then there's an ev even distribution there's not the incentive really to produce more and therefore the concept of being able to, to produce more and then keep the excess of production leads to the idea of more production which is thought to increase the level of output overall. Corporations are a type of institutions that have thought to lead to a, a lot of growth because the corporations limit the liability for the investment. So people that are investing within the corporations have more of a limited liability and therefore are more likely to invest the capital, that invested capital leading towards the use of that capital and leading towards growth. Capital accumulation is going to be another factor of growth. Often we think of saving and investment, saving investment being components that will then be saving and invested to capital, the accumulation of capital using that capital. When we think about capital, we often think about physical capital like machinery and whatnot within the factors of production. That, that's not the only capital we can think of when we're thinking of capital. There's also human capital. There's going to be social capital. So human capital or skills for workers gained from like experience, education, on-job training. Human capital being an important factor. Social capital being things like norms that incentivize the increase of production. So the way the population basically thinks in terms of social norms, if we have so, if there's social norms that are geared towards production and being more productive and whatnot, those are types of norms that tend to be thought to lead to productivity. It's important to note that not all capital will often lead to productivity. Some of the capital could be obsolete, so it's important to think about which types of capital are going to lead towards the most growth when we're thinking about the increase of capital. The next component of growth, the availability of resources. So the availability of resources is thought to be a key component in, for, for example, the U.S. growth. When the U.S. is majorly growing, they had a lot of resources, including natural resources as well as land, and those being aspects that are thought to contribute to a large period of growth within the U.S. Resources are also, of course, something that we can trade for if in trading for resources. It's also note that resources can change with technology. So one natural resource that's always going to be out there is being close to water. Being close to water, being a huge natural resource. One of the reasons it's always been a huge natural resource in the past is because most of shipping happened through waterways. And of course now we still have that, but there's other ways to ship. And so that particular factor of being by water may be a bit different now, although there's still huge resources to be in by water. 
But other types of natural resources, we think of something like oil. Before we knew how to use oil and burn oil, the oil was not at all productive. It was actually something that was probably detrimental to have on the land. And now it's obviously resourceful. If we then use technology and get past uh, oil and start to use something that would be more efficient, then again, the oil may then turn out to be less uh, useful at some point. And this is an important idea that the technology is often something that's going to outpace if the use of the resources. So we often run into this problem. We'll talk a bit more about this a bit later. But we often run into this problem that we're going to say, well, we're going to run out of resources. And if we have an increase in technology, oftentimes that's our way out of the problem more often than not. And that's actually a more positive perspective that we can take a look at in, in economics, which is often called the dismal science. Another source of growth would be technology. So increases in technology would, of course, increase uh, the growth. That's going to be really a, one of the major focuses that are currently looked at is the increase in technology. And that's the way we make goods and services. So when we think about technology, we probably now think about like new computers and things like that. But anything, a technology is increasing or changing the way we do things, uh, whether it be a really technical type of thing like computers and software now or just this changing in the process and, and the way things are done in order to increase production. And the thing that's great about technology is that, of course, a change in technology in one area often leads to changes in technologies in other areas. So people really feed off of technology a lot of times. That's what we call, that's what we can see as a form of, nat of externality, a positive externality oftentimes with these uh, technology because once the technology is out there, it might be applicable in one industry and other people can use similar concepts and apply it to different industries. And that's the type of thing can really increase the uh, production possibilities. And then the next component of growth is going to be entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship being the idea that the ability to get things done is the uh, ability of an entrepreneur, the creativity idea, the vision, the willingness to accept risk. Those are the types of things that the entrepreneurs have. And it's not a, a skill that everybody has or, the, again, the culture of, of an organization doesn't always produce individuals that, that have that in the norms to want to take on more <laughs> risk and and that type of thing because taking on risk is taking on risk it's a it's not a natural thing to do a lot of times and this is going to be one of the areas that's thought that in the u.s has, has contributed to a lot of growth and we take an example like bill gates who has become very wealthy through the production of computers and the revolutionizing of computers through that self-interest and through the process of getting very wealthy has also influenced a lot of people in terms of one having the computer usage for a lot of people and two, in creating a lot of jobs for the economy, really increasing our GDP and a lot of other countries' GDPs along the way by allowing them to be more efficient through these types of technologies that have been provided. So that's that paradox of, of capitalism that we have here. One, that huge uneven distribution of the wealth, because obviously if you got very wealthy through this process, but the same can be argued that through that process of that accumulation of wealth, he helped more people than basically anyone else, even though he was self-interested in uh, his goals in that in that case. So that's going to be kind of the paradox that uh, often we take a look at. But the process of, of that innovation entrepreneur, often one of the major components that can move out the production possibilities. This leads to the idea that the, the classical model is often focused more on the capital growth and therefore it's going to be focused on saving. So a capital model is often focused on saving, which is going to be put into investment and that's going to increase capital, that's going to increase growth. And that's why uh, the classical model is often going to lead to policy recommendations that want to reduce spending below uh, the amount that is taken in. We don't want it, the classical model doesn't want to have deficits. And of course, that's going to run contra to the more Keynesian model, 
which would say that in the short run, it's okay to have de uh, deficits. It's okay to overspend at a point when you need to stimulate the economy. And of course, from a policy perspective, that's where the, the two views have uh, problems. At one time, it was thought that we would have a problem, and that problem being called the law of diminishing marginal uh, productivity. And this is one of the problems that really got economics the name of like the dismal sciences, predictions like these. But they make sense through the time period, and you can see why people would come to these predictions. And that idea would be that the capital countries would slow down because of, as more variable input is added, eventually the additional output produced will fall with each new input. So the idea being that resources are limited, for example, people are not. If we take examples of a farms, which was the common example at the time, production production of more food is going to increase as long as we put more people, more human capital into the production of food, we can then make more food. But the problem that was observed at the time was that people are growing at like an exponential rate and the land is not. So at some point in time, if you just look at the math there, we would eventually run into some type of problem where we have no more land and a lot of people and the production wouldn't be there. Now, later on, this technology, this, this prediction didn't play out. And the reason it didn't play out is because of the advances in technology. Advances in technology made the production of food a lot better. So the idea is that the advances in technology should be able to hopefully continue to outpace this type of problem, the law of diminishing, diminishing marginal uh, productivity. And that's why the new focus, oftentimes in, in a long-term perspective, would be on the production of uh, technology. And this is actually a very common, uh, very positive outlook in terms of economics, the idea that if we continue to grow and if we in continue to increase in technology, then we can overcome some of these problems, some of these problems such as the one with the limitation of land. We still have predictions about, about limitations with resources with regard to land, think with regard to natural resources like oil, and air and, and there's two approaches to to those types of problems one is to restrict the consumption and and the second is to grow and come up with new technology in order to find out new solutions to problems like that and so that's actually a fairly positive uh, look on how we can get through some of the problems that we have so if that is the goal then how do we get more technology what is technology technology advance is the result of uh, what the economy does so we want if there's going to be more investment do we need more investment in research and development in one way or another what are the types of ways that uh, more investment can be put into place should it be done through the private or uh, government spending in terms of research and development make advances in science things within science uh, area are advances that uh, would be good for technology to get new knowledge out there uh, work out new ways of organized production, so better systems of production organization, more efficient ways to do things. And then there's ideas of institutions within technology and laws and whatnot, because we know that those positive ex externalities do have positive effects within the market, and we want to incentivize these new effects. We want to incentivize things like research and development. And the classical idea of this, the classical thought process when we think about types of policies that might be beneficial in order to do this, would be things if we're producing something like medicine. If you can imagine we're producing a medicine for some kind of problem and it takes millions of dollars to make the medicine, millions of dollars to, to go through the testing, to test the medicine in order to get it ready for production. And then right when you give for production, someone else can then just copy it for five cents or something like that. That's, that's going to be one of the problems that don't incentivize. It's thought to may not incentivize the production of the medicine. And that those are where ideas of property rights in terms of intangible assets such as patents and things like that, uh, to incentivize people to want to do the research and development and those types of institutions to set that up. Of course, there's going to be pros and cons to that because 
once a drug has been made, we, we want to distribute to anybody that needs something like that. So there's debates on how those laws should be set up. Uh, but we can see this in, in a lot of different areas and technology types of areas in, in production of uh, entertainment areas. What, what are going to be the pro property rights uh, formats? How are, we, how are we going to set up those laws to incentivize people to want to engage in uh, production of technology? There's also a debate over the idea of technology lock-in, meaning some restrictions to technology just because of the current technology in place. So this often happens in things like networks, and it's, it's questionable. So things like a phone line, once the phone line's in place and you have the network, it's difficult for new technology to, to take its place because the net, well, you need the network. You can't have a phone line if there's only one person on the network. Two people's better. Once the network has been set up, it's difficult for another type of technology to get in place because that network has then been set up. We see this in a lot of operating systems have the same type of thing. Uh, if we're using an operating system that nobody else uses, it might be the best operating system ever. But if no one else uses it, then we may not be able to run anything on it. You know, social media networks are going to be in, in the same thing. We need you, you need a network to work it. So once the network is in place, something else may come in that's, that might be better, and it, it can't really get hold in the market in something like that. We often see this in, in things like DVDs. When DVDs come into the market, there's a debate, debate over what format is the best. And whichever one tends to get the most people to, to be putting their movies on the DVD is probably the one that's going to win, even though it might not be the best technology in terms of just overall performance. And so there's questions in terms of how, what kind of impact does that have? Is, it, is that good or bad? Does it, does it have a big impact? or a minor impact, but it's an interesting note to, to, to look at. So with all this said, let's go back to our growth policies, the growth policies that the thought process of someone who's thinking in this classical model tend to lead towards. We're going to look at the policies that these thought process, this thought process tends to lead towards. It tends to lead towards encouraging saving and investments rather than spending, and that's oftentimes one of the major points of conflict between a classical model and a Keynesian model. Keynesian model, meaning uh, short-term investments uh, are, are, are by the government spending to stimulate the economy being something that's needed and deficits not a big problem during some time periods, depending on where we are in the business cycle. And the uh, classical model tending to be more on the idea of long-term growth and that being done through more saving and investing, formalizing property rights and reducing bureaucracy and, and corruption. Property rights being important to a classical model, then providing the right kind of education. So increasing education is, is thought to be a growth aspect. Promoting policies that encourage technological innovation is going to be the types of policies that are going to be wanting to be put in place if they were in a classical model perspective. And promoting policies that allow the taking advantage of specializations, things that tend people norms that tend to have people want to take place in specializations as well as institutions that uh, encourage these types of things. Those are the types of policies that a classical model would tend to lead towards.